Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much that where two or three are gathered in your name, here you are. So we come to you, Lord Jesus. We come to the thousands of messengers gathered around you. We come to the spirits of the righteous gathered around you. Thank you that around you we become the assembly of the firstborn, that with you we are your father's firstborn children. So we come to you to worship you. Help us by your spirit to worship you. In your name, Lord Jesus. I think a couple of Sundays ago, I said that Hebrews describes itself well as a word of encouragement. One of the things that makes it effective as a word of encouragement is that it acknowledges, frankly, that people are often discouraged. Something that can make Hebrews challenging to read is the intimate alternation of two moods. There are moments that quite directly, even harshly, acknowledge the realities of Christian existence and Christian failure in the world. God never lets us down, and God never gives up on us. But Christians often disappoint themselves and often hurt one another. In Hebrews, encouragement doesn't come without warning. But then there are moments of amazing exaltation and profound insight. So I would really rather have started our reading today with the dramatic words, you have not come to what may be touched, but you have come to the city of the living God. But in fact, I think we should make ourselves hear the words of warning before we allow ourselves to approach the vision of Mount Zion. I think it may be important for us in Emmaus right now to do some gardening, to remove potential roots of bitterness. I don't pretend to know exactly how to do that work among us. I certainly don't want to exaggerate, but I think receiving Hebrews 12, 14 to 17, may be a part of the process we're called to, even if it means that the first half of today's sermon will be a bit of a downer. So let's try to hear the warning of those opening verses in our reading. Strive for peace with everyone. Something important in this whole section is that the commands are addressed in the plural. We are supposed to strive for peace together, collectively. In context, strive for peace with everyone is primarily saying to the Christian community that we should strive together for peace within the community. There are other places, Romans 12, that urge Christians to be at peace as much as possible with everyone inside and outside the Christ community. Here the accent is on peace inside the Lord's community. You may recall a couple of weeks ago, I tried to persuade you that faith or trust and right-wiseness are relationships. 
not standalone virtues, which a person might cultivate alone. That's even truer of peace and holiness, at least in Hebrews. Biblical peace, shalom, is not even theoretically possible for an individual alone. Faith is primarily my one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus. Peace is primarily our plural relationship with one another. It would be wrong for you to place your faith in me. But it is deeply right for us to struggle together to find peace with one another in the body of Christ. I don't mean to overstate this. When we proclaim our faith um, through the words of the, uh, especially the Nicene Creed, we use the, the Apostles' Creed today, we rightly profess that we believe in one holy, Catholic and Apostolic Church. We put our Jesus-centered faith also in his gathered assembly. One, holy, all around the world, sent into the world. Without faith, the body of Christ is dead. Without inward peace, the body of Christ is uncoordinated and weak. The command, strive for peace, is very beautiful in this way. Strive means fight, doesn't it? There's no peace without appropriate strife. Peace is not the suppression of conflict. We're commanded to wrestle together for peace with one another. Hebrews isn't talking about a kind of peace which I might cultivate in quiet solitude. Hebrews is certainly not talking about the kind of peace that arises from one side winning total victory. It's talking about a peace that you and I are going to have to hammer out together in Jesus' workshop. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Some translations prefer to write sanctification rather than holiness. But sanctification always sounds to me like moral progress, which is not what Hebrews has in mind. Hebrews 13, 12 will remind us how it is that we have become irreversibly holy together. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, in order to consecrate as holy the people, that is the community, through his own blood. So holiness is a consequence of Jesus' priesthood for us collectively. But it clearly has an individual outcome. Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews puts some wonderful promises in negative form. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Implies to me that with faith, it is possible to please God. Holiness without which no one will see the Lord means we can receive from Jesus a holiness by which we will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble 
and by it many become defiled. This verse is clearly warning Christians against failure of our Christian life. See to it, be watchful, is commanding us collectively to take some responsibility for keeping an eye on one another as individuals. Hebrews is very much about the impossibility of succeeding in the Christian life on your own. You can see it in this passage. When Hebrews takes seriously the possibility of failure and the inevitability of brokenness in each of us, it switches to the singular. Be plural, careful that no one singular misses out on God's grace. So what does it mean to fail and miss out on God's grace? The grace of God is, of course, a gift. What does it mean to fail in relation to receiving a gift? I, I can think of relationships in which I felt uncomfortable accepting a gift, usually because I thought that gift giving was not appropriate to the relationship. But between me and God, between you and God, there can be no inappropriateness on God's side. God just gives. But on our side, it can happen in our brokenness that we can make strange and shy away from God's grace. Hebrews reminds us that in Exodus, the people of God begged God not to speak anymore. They were just so terrified and Moses with them. We are so wounded by our own sins and by other people's sins, including other Christians' sins, that we can easily get to the place where we're afraid to accept God's gift. Especially inside the Christian community, it isn't rare or unusual for Christians to become bitter and offended with ourselves and with others in a way that chokes grace and then injures many. Verse 16 is a bit odd, that we are supposed to keep an eye out that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. This feels unfair. The Bible can use words like promiscuous, not just in a strictly sexual sense, but also in a spiritual sense when we violate our special relationship with God. So Esau's failure in Genesis 25 was not that he was sexually immoral or even unholy in any way most of us would think of as unholy. In Genesis 25, Esau messes up and forfeits the blessing that should have been part of his unique relationship with his father. He isn't promiscuous and profane in the most obvious sense. But Esau is distracted into cheapening and profaning and selling short the father's blessing that should have been his by grace. Esau's relationship with his father, Jacob, is fundamentally inalienable. There's nothing Esau could do to lose his sonship. Jacob and Esau are father and son, and they can't get away from that. But the special blessing that should have been Esau's, Esau throws away 
for a benefit that is trivial and temporary. Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. Could you bring yourself to hear that terrifying prophecy of Isaiah's that we read earlier today? Isaiah accuses the people and leaders of Israel of trading their identity in God for a covenant of death and taking shelter in a narrative of lies. Isaiah prophesies the coming day when God will establish a new cornerstone in Jerusalem and Zion who will destroy the covenant of death, which sounds great and sounds to us like Jesus, doesn't it? But the coming of the new cornerstone in Zion will first of all have the effect of uncovering the reality which the covenant of death was hiding, of realizing and releasing the floods and the hail and the destruction against the land and its people. In Isaiah's own day, I guess, the covenant of death was probably the willingness of Israel's leaders to focus on short-term wealth and prosperity in exchange for not doing anything about an evil future they all knew was coming. I'm afraid our whole post-Christian society has done what it could to alienate and nullify its heritage and its future for the sake of short-term gain. But Hebrews is warning Christians not to settle for less than God's full blessing. Hebrews is warning Christians not to settle for a short-term covenant with death. Hebrews is brutal about how hard it is to come back when a Christian deliberately tries to throw away the birthright of our adoption into Jesus, God's firstborn. I don't know what I would do if Jesus didn't tell us about the faithfulness and grace of our Father who waits and waits waits and waits to welcome his children home. But this is the moment when Hebrews suddenly turns to tell us where we are in Christ and where the grace of God has brought us. I've been hearing, I think you have too, the word apocalypse a lot lately, used to mean a catastrophe, a disaster, usually on a vast scale. But in the biblical tradition, apocalypse means an unveiling, a revelation. An apocalypse is an experience or a text in which God removes for the moment the veil, which is there most of the time to protect us from what we are not ready to see. So Hebrews 12, 18 to 29 is formally a brief but powerful apocalypse. It's an interesting apocalypse because it starts by reminding us of where we have not come. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. 
for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I find it so interesting how the writer of Hebrews vividly evokes where we have not arrived. Hebrews powerfully pictures where we have not come. Most people think that Hebrews was composed for an audience of Jewish Christ believers, but I'm never quite convinced. Hebrews itself only assumes that its audience know the Bible. And so we're reminded here powerfully that Moses and Israel were, in fact, called into the presence of God on Mount Sinai to receive the covenant of God. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Uh, Exodus 19. We are reminded that Israel both received God's covenant promises and also did what was humanly possible to mess them up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I make a, may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people, Exodus 32. So the author of Hebrews is reminding us of three things. First, that Israel did arrive at Mount Sinai to experience the presence of God dramatically, apocalyptically revealed. Second, that the covenant between God and Israel is real and inalienable, but also limited and damaged by human failing. Third, that you and I are not arrived there. In real life, Israel was invited to Mount Sinai to receive the old covenant promised to Abraham Isaac and Jacob. But in Jesus, you and I are invited by their example to arrive somewhere else. Unlike Israel, we have not arrived at Mount Sinai. In order that we have arrived in Jesus at Mount Zion, at Mount Zion. Quite often, people have read Hebrews as mostly about the difference 
between visible and invisible realities. And I am going to talk about that a bit. But Hebrews is even more fundamentally about the difference between the old covenant between God and Israel at Sinai and the new covenant now finally available to us at Zion. Now, if I read Hebrews and the whole New Testament correctly, the relationship between that old covenant revealed in fire and thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai and the new covenant revealed in the bloody cross and the empty tomb of Jesus at the gate of Jerusalem is not that the new covenant replaces and abrogates the old covenant, for God is faithful to all his promises. The relationship is that the new covenant is even better, even more gracious than the first covenant. And it's available to me and to you by faith, and not only to one particular little tribe by inheritance. So we have not arrived at the promises of the Old Testament for Israel, but we have arrived at something profoundly better for today and tomorrow and forever in Jesus. The most important thing to say about this declaration is that it's about the present. Even in the midst of all the craziness of the present times, this is not just a vision of where we will someday arrive. It's where we really are right now together in Christ. You may know that in the revelation to John of Patmos at the end of the Bible, there is a vision of the new Jerusalem of the future. Here in Hebrews, we have the declaration of Jesus' new Jerusalem as it is right now. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you notice how different the two descriptions are of the two covenant mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion? Mount Sinai is described in terms of its terrifying special effects, fire and tempest and, and, and thunder. Mount Zion isn't described as a place at all. It's described in terms of the worshipers and the God we meet here. Hebrews lists eight things that we have arrived at, listed in four pairs. Footnote, I owe this observation of the pairings to Harold Attridge. The first pair is that Mount Zion, unlike Mount Sinai, is also a city, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Remember that God promised, even in a word of judgment in Isaiah, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The Zion of the new covenant in Jesus is not just a place, Jerusalem, 
but it is the worldwide and, lo and local community that is positioned around Jesus. The second pair of terms in Hebrews list of where we have arrived is on the one hand, the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and on the other hand, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, that is us. We are right now the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. And we are worshiping here and now beside innumerable angels in festal gathering. It's actually quite interesting that Hebrews only uses the word assembly or church, ecclesia, twice here and in chapter 2. In Hebrews 2, 12, if I understand it correctly, the risen Lord Jesus speaks the words of Psalm 22 to God the Father, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the church. I will sing your praise. Do you wonder that it is said, church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven? I'm actually the baby in my family. I went through much of my childhood unsuccessfully trying to keep up with the grown-ups. In Hebrews 1.6, Jesus is hailed as the firstborn. You and I are legally in the law of God, enrolled with Jesus as firstborn with him as co-inheritors of his birthright and his father's special blessing, infinitely greater than the blessing that Esau threw away. That's how it is possible for each of us to be equally firstborn in God's family because we are legally enrolled, merged into Jesus. Hebrews understands Jesus to be in our midst right now, singing the praises of his father in the community of the firstborn children of heaven. It's us in the presence of thousands of witnesses. The third pair of terms in Hebrews Apocalypse, its unveiling of our present Jerusalem, is on the one hand, God, the judge of all. And on the other hand, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Hebrews actually thinks about right wiseness a little differently than Paul does. Paul likes to emphasize that right wiseness comes to me now by simple faith, by trust in Jesus. Hebrews thinks about right wiseness and perfection as the outcomes of this life in Christ. So right now, Hebrews understands us to be worshiping as the assembly of God's firstborn with thousands of angels on one side of us and a crowd of God's right wise ones 
made perfect on our other side. And then the final pairing in this unveiling of the worshiping community, visible and invisible, here and now, it's the best of all. It's the pairing of Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. It's interesting that Hebrews mentions here that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other ways, this sentence makes me think more of the talking blood which on Mount Sinai, Moses uses to confirm the first covenant in Exodus 24. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. But the reference to Abel here in Hebrews takes us back to Hebrews 11, where the faith of Abel made his sacrifice more acceptable to God than Cain's, so that by faith, Abel still speaks. In the church, Jesus' sacrifice is even more acceptable than Abel's, and Jesus' blood speaks here and now that Jesus' sacrifice has worked for us, that Jesus and his speaking blood are the basis for our existence here and now as his people. You see, you, you didn't come here to hear me speak or to eat a little piece of bread if we'd been doing communion or to hang out with a few dozen weirdos. You came here today to hear the promises of God crying out in Jesus' blood, not for judgment, but for grace, and to know yourself to be surrounded by innumerable angels and the spirits of the righteous and the worldwide assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. This is where we are right now. This has one enormous implication for my future and yours and the future of a world in trouble. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The author of Hebrews remembers a word from Haggai, in which in its context in Haggai, God is encouraging his people who are discouraged and dispirited, promising them that things will be better. But Hebrews hears this word as God's word to his people now. Our English translation reads, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. It then emphasizes the phrase, yet once more. But Hebrews uses much the same phrase elsewhere to mean once and for all, with reference to Jesus' death, once and for all. In our strange days, God is crying out to us, both in warning and in promise. Once and for all, I will shake the sky and the earth and the sea 
and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and the choice things of all the nations shall come, and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord Almighty. I think I would have to say that the sky and the earth and the sea and the dry land and the nations do seem to be shaking. Of course, I do not know whether this is now once and for all. But when the creator God shakes his world, he shakes in order to sift out what he intends to keep for himself, the unshakable things that are here now, but meant to last forever. Jesus' priesthood and our right to be enrolled together in his covenant. So our task and our privilege as the assembly of the firstborn registered with God is to encourage and warn and bear with one another and to practice the life of gratitude and worship. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingship that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. <laughs>